0: Channel 5 presents Movies Till Dawn for your late-night entertainment. Tonight, The Man Who Never Was.
1: Welcome to Movies Till Dawn a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond Felita, and I hope you won't regret spending the next four or so minutes with us. You know what? I'm going to tell you a quick story because uh, uh, this, is, this is a John Avildsen interview. This is part two. Um, and of course, John won the Oscar for directing Rocky. And it turns out that even if you win an Academy Award for directing one of the most famous movies of all time, there's another point of view about it. Now, it rarely comes from the director. Usually, there are haters out there that say they shouldn't have won that Oscar. That director isn't the best of the year. That, I mean, that's that's part of the course, right? Well, one of the things about John Avelson that I found so interesting and so unusual was he was, uh, he was self-deprecating, but not in a falsely modest way. He was a most honest guy. Uh, and on one of my early trips to his house to, you know, as I, I said, we would go have dinner and we'd watch a movie of his and we'd chat. There was the Oscar that he won for Ros- Rocky, and it was on the shelf, and he said— you want to see it? And I was like, yeah. Well, it turns out the Oscar is a really heavy item, so he dragged it down. I held it. And I was like, that's pretty cool, John. And you know what he said? He said, yeah, I didn't win it. The movie won it. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, that year, Alan Pakula, Sidney Lumet, Robert Altman, uh, Francois Truffaut, and me. He said, they all made a, they all did a better directing job, but the movie won it. And I thought, I'm never going to hear that from another director who won an Oscar ever. And that was, but that was him. He was, he was so incredibly honest that he would, as I I think I previously said, he would walk off of obvious great projects just because he couldn't do it. He had an honest streak in him that was, you know, he, 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 that was his religion Um, And it was one of the things I I admired and was also kind of so amused by. I I never knew, you know, what what I was going to hear from him in that way. So we had this conversation about a year before he died, uh, unexpectedly. And uh, there's a couple of funny things that happened during this conversation. One of them, I kind of confront him about his reputation. And he doesn't own up to it. But John's reputation was kind of brutal. He was a tough dude. And everyone who worked with him would tell you this. On the other hand, personally, he was a lovely, low-key, very charming, and like I say, a very modest guy. Uh, So there's a moment of that. There's another moment, though, that is even stranger, and it was made strange by fate. And it'll come up. It has to do with a movie that he was supposed to direct and that somebody else wound up directing. And I'll tell you about that if you listen to the interview. Here's part two of my conversation with John Abelson. One of the things that I I think in retrospect, because Rocky's become so iconic and there have been so many Rockies since, it feels to me very much as as if it were an indie, an an independent film at the time, and you come from that world.
0: Yeah, but it was uh, UA, and it was, uh, you know, we uh, cut the thing at... uh at MGM before it became Sony. Boy was that, a, did I get a great glimpse of film history um, because I, I, was, I was there for the first time in 1971. I had uh, been hired to uh, uh, reshoot uh, uh, a couple of uh, weeks of uh, a Charlotte Winkler uh, turkey that uh, the studio said was unreleasable. So they uh, came up with new stuff to shoot. This, you could shoot forever and nothing would make this thing. But anyway, certainly didn't turn down the job. So we uh, we shot some stuff in New York and then went out to uh, uh, Culver City to cut it. So we had one scene um, where there's supposed to be uh, the, the sound of uh, a TV program coming through the walls of this cheap tenement. So the editor said, well, you know, should we just hear a Western? And I said, wait a minute. This is MGM. You've got the library. you got all the movies here. Let, let me see what's in the library. And they had all the movies. So at lunch uh, every day, I would sit there in the mogul seat, and uh, the commissary would send a guy over with my lunch with a white jacket, and I'd sit there <laughs> watching all these uh, great movies. And if I wasn't doing that, then I would... Strolled around the back lot, where all these great sets were, and, and 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 nothing had. Everybody just sort of walked away. There were cans of film that were on the. It was just, uh, and I had this idea. I said, "They're going to tear this place down because they're going to put up a housing development. So, what? What if? What if a movie uh, a buff?" sneaked in before they tore it down and started taking pictures of these various streets, like Andy Hardy's Street or Esther Williams' swimming pool or the plantation uh, uh, set. I mean, they had this plantation, the long road leading up. You could be blind and get good shots at this place. It was it was incredible. And um, so he sneaks in and takes stills and suddenly two minutes of that movie shows up uh, on the screen. And, how, and it's not gonna cost anything because you own the movies and you own everything. And, uh, and meanwhile, there's an old editor uh, who works there and he's very much against the idea of this place being torn down. And meanwhile, the head of the studio has a 12-year-old daughter and. He uh, has uh, her and her classmates taking a tour of the place before it gets torn down. And the old editor kidnaps the daughter. <laughs> and the ransom being you can't tear the place down. <laughs> now uh, uh, the editor and the, uh, and the movie buff who's been taking the pictures, they are, they are both uh, sort of thrown into this thing together because the cops knows they're there. and the, And the movie buff starts talking to the editor no you can't do this remember in this movie so-and-so said this and the other guys yeah but what did so-and-so said and we see all these clips illustrating their different points of view and finally they uh, the the guy lets the uh, the daughter uh go but uh, sets fire to the place and the whole place burns down and I said you're going to tear the place down anyway so why not burn it down and make it. it part of the movie <laughs> they didn't get it and a couple of and, years and it's
1: essentially a free everything in it was would have been free you would have had exactly. an, the lowest budget movie with the yeah, greatest absolutely. production values exactly of it. and
0: a few years later they did that's entertainment
1: <laughs> right well I think that was probably when you were there was shortly after uh, James Aubrey was sort of the, he was the famous still the, he was the boss and he sold everything off and auctioned and, and, off and all the and one them. of these
0: movies I saw was Errol Flynn's uh uh, uh, uh Robin Hood, Michael Cortez, a beautiful, flawless color print. It was just so beautiful. So I, I went into Aubrey's office. I said, you know, I just saw you, you own Robin Hood. Why not reshoot it? make a new Robin Hood and with the cameras now, you can get up in the trees. I mean, it's very, and he loved the idea and he started pressing buttons. John here wants to do Robin Hood. Suddenly there are four guys standing, sitting around his table. And then they started talking about, would he wear leather? I said, well, I guess. Well, they started talking <laughs> leather for a half an hour. Well, anyway, um, I, I walked out of there saying, gee, this is easy. <laughs> For more than 40 years, the most important discovery of this century has been kept secret. These two men know why. MGM presents George C. Scott, Marlon Brando in The Formula. They will meet during the investigation of a bizarre murder, when evidence of the formula mysteriously reappears. Genesis turns out to be something the Nazis considered very top secret. And whatever it is, it's still in Germany. In a world starved for energy, no secret is more
1: important than the formula.
0: The people will accept the now because we can blame it on the
1: Arabs. Arthur, you're uh, missing the point. We are the heroes You actually made a movie called *The Formula* with Marlon Brando and George C. Scott. Two, two of two of the most terrifying presences to each on their own. To most directors who had to work with them, deal with them, and you have them both. Did you did you take that on willingly as a as a as a challenge? Did you how did you how did you survive that? I had uh, just uh,
0: developed a uh, script with Peter Sellers called. Uh... Fu
1: Manchu. An- another famously easy fellow to, to right. get along with. Yeah. And well, in, in the
0: beginning, we got along great. He thought I was the new Kubrick. We couldn't have had a, uh, a nicer time. And I remember uh, talking to Al Ashby, who had done uh, that great movie. Being, Being There. Being yeah. There. I said, you know, what's? can you give me some insight? He said, yes, don't wear purple. <laughs> Yeah, he had weird phobias. Yeah, I had um, a number of phobias. Um, <laughs> uh, I got, uh, I got uh, fired because he decided he was going to direct it. But I was pay or play, so suddenly I make all this money and I don't have to get up in the morning. Right. I said, wow, how long has this been going on? Then uh, Steve Sh- Shagan sent me the, uh, the manuscript for uh, the formula. I read this thing and I don't understand. I said, why would the guy do this? Steve said, I don't know. I said, why would he do that? I don't know. So then it turns out that they're going to make a movie out of it.
1: It was a novel first. Right. Yeah.
0: So I said, somebody along the line is going to show up and say, we can't make this thing because it makes no sense. Meanwhile, I'll get to be pay or play. Meanwhile, I get paid and I don't want to get up to early. And so they won't early. make the movie. <laughs> well, I got caught. That guy never showed up and they made the movie. Um... Now, uh, Steve Shagan wanted uh, Gene Hackman for the part. I said, oh, no, 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 we need George Scott. Oh, what a mistake. (laughs) What a mistake. And we even had uh, lunch with him, and he was shooting back the Boilermakers and damning the the faggots and the war protesters, and I still didn't see the light. (laughs) Oh, So now we're going to do it with George Scott. MGM said, uh, you know, you got to come up with somebody... uh, besides him because he's not selling that many tickets. So we've got the oil guy who's gonna give him a tough time now. And I say, now who's gonna give George Scott a tough time? And Brando came to mind and he lived up here on Mulholland, uh, not not far from here. And uh, we're driving up Coldwater with Steve Shagan and Steve's lawyer who was also Brando's lawyer. And on our way, the lawyer says to Steve, listen, when we get there, can you tell Marlon that it was my idea for him to be in the movie? Steve said, sure. And I said to myself, wow, talk about insecurity. It, here he is. He's a big hotshot Hollywood uh, lawyer. And he's still, I mean, that just shows you the the terror that is, it lurks in the shadows of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So we get to uh, Brando's house and there's the, the big sign outside that says, don't even think about smoking. <laughs> and uh, we get uh, ushered in and uh, Marlon couldn't be more gracious and blah, blah, blah. And there are these lovely Asian ladies walking around asking us what would we like to drink and what have you. So now we get down to business and he said, you know, I've been thinking, I think this character might live out in the desert and he might have a big dish antenna and walk around in his bare feet and a straw hat and a moo moo. And I said, Well, you could do that. I I was thinking this guy is like got a three-button suit and it's on the cover of Time magazine. He said, all right, I was just testing you. (laughs) (laughs) So he couldn't have been more fun. He was just an absolute... uh, Delight. In his bedroom, half the bedroom uh, was bongos, and the other half was ham radio stuff, because he loved
1: ham radio, because he could talk around the world, and nobody knew who he was. It's interesting, that testing story, because what, I, what I've heard about him was that he, he would sometimes do two different versions, two different takes, and if he heard a director print the wrong one, he would decide, okay, I'm only given 50% to this movie. Because they're they're gonna pick the wrong stuff anyway. I always
0: say to the star, "Are you happy?" Yeah. You know why why not be happy?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Doesn't mean we'll use that one, but at least you you know you're gonna be you know happy for the rest of the day, hopefully.
1: Yeah. So tell me about Brando and Scott together in the formula. What what was that? What was uh, that set like? What was that day like?
0: Uh, uh, well, Brando every morning he'd say, "How was George today?" <laughs>
1: Yeah, and George. So he was actually
0: intimidated by Scott. Well, George's uh, idea of a good time is getting drunk and getting into a fist fight. Uh, he was a prize fighter for a while. And then when he was in the Marines, he was detailed to Arlington Cemetery. So every day he buried somebody. So that gets you really in a great state of mind, right? Oi oi oi, was he a workout?
1: Did you, did you ever have a fist fight with him? No, no. Or come close?
0: No, it wouldn't have been much of a contest. Um... But I do remember one day in Switzerland, he showed up uh, first thing in the morning in this little set that we had in the safe deposit room or, or whatever. Uh, he must have had a few drinks before that. And at the end of the, the, end of the scene, he, he said, that's it for me, I'm going to the bar. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay, well, let's see now that you know what you're gonna do, I'm gonna have to find something to do. <laughs> so he was just a very unhappy guy. Yeah. Very talented, but uh, a, a real... Uh, I, I wish I had gone with Gene Hackman.
1: Were you able to get them to rehearse? Uh,
0: somewhat, yeah. No, Not not really beforehand. They didn't want to? Well, I don't think we could afford it and, and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, afford it. That's a great story. Brando got $250,000 in cash each day. That was in the contract. Uh, an attaché case would be, uh, showed up at the, uh, at uh, the uh, set at the end of each day by some uh, suit from the studio, and Brando went home with $250,000 in cash. I said, Marlon, God bless you. Everybody would like to do it that way.
1: How (laughs) many days did he work?
0: I think it was about two and a half million dollars worth. In a not too distant suburb. On a very quiet street, Earl Kees, a reserved, hard-working homeowner, sits calmly waiting for his dinner. Little does he know, he's about to meet the Neighbors.
1: Neighbors is, is, is very funny. You and I watched it, and you said that you thought the two could have switched roles. Belushi and Ackroyd.
0: Well, I, I that's and that might I, have been more effective. Am I remembering that right? Or well, I suggested before we shot it that they switch roles, mm-hmm. and they did. And then uh, Belushi got uh, disenchanted of playing a white, uh, playing a, an old guy with white hair and so on after a couple of days. So the honeymoon. So you switched was back? Over. No, no, no. The the die had been cast. Oh, I see. I think it made more sense. And I thought John did a good job as the uptight
1: guy. Yeah. What was he like at that point in his life? Belushi? It depends on which day you're talking about.
0: It was like Belushi roulette—you never knew who you were going to get.
1: Yeah, yeah. On the on the good days, was he? Was he was his... very, very good. On the bad days, he was horrid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the guy was I... a
1: performer, or is just a, a personality to deal with, or or what was the? I I remember this one fight
0: that we had. I said, John, you got to be professional about this. And he said, I don't want to be a professional.
1: <laughs> so he was honest. Right. So that was only about a year before he died, I think. Oh, yeah, right, or less. Yeah. W- w- was was Aykroyd something of his caretaker?
0: Yes, very much so. Uh, Danny was uh, the, the polar opposite. He was uh, like the North Star, he was constant, always a gent. Uh, we rewrote that uh, the script, and we had a great time together, and um, he, he he couldn't have been uh, uh, more fun Vic, come on, help me! I'll buy you a new truck! Not like that one, and how about my triplane? How are you gonna replace that, huh? Help, please! I'm being sucked down! Uh, maybe it's best that way. What are you talking about? Well, you're not the ideal neighbor. You sacked my truck, you insulted my sauce, and you violated Ramona! You said it was just a joke but she was in your bathtub but well, no she wasn't she she was in the bed and that is where you saw her mamma her mammal her honkers are up. but she dropped the towel did she drop it or did you psychically will it to fall will it to fall did you will her towel to fall no never no Admit it or they'll go easier on you if you do. Oh boy, temp music. I went on uh, Neighbors. The temp music I had was from old uh, 30s and 40s horror films. And it was perfect. And, they, and, and the test screenings, everybody loved it. And, uh, and then I made a fatal mistake and I didn't say, you know what, we don't need a score. We're, we should just go with this. And I didn't do that. And if I had, I think it would have had a much better uh, reception.
1: The other thing I remember when we watched it was that the the score that got put on the film actually makes it... You have to kind of swim through it, yeah, to, it to get the humor it, of the film. It, it really does the it movie a disservice. It overpowered and, a,
0: and, a, and a, it, it didn't contribute to it. It, uh, it was too on the nose, and it, it didn't... Give the audience any chance to participate.
1: I'm just thinking of your idea of using old. Oh, no, that, be great. That
0: yeah. I just—it—it it was the perfect counterbalance to
1: to the movie. It it really worked. Have you ever thought of going back just for your own satisfaction and splitting the tracks and and doing another? Oh, pass? good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you make never... all those cool videos that you put <laughs> well, on your yeah, YouTube the, channel. But, yeah, you could... right.
0: To go through the machinations of getting those tracks so I could get back to the original M&E, I have, you know, where that starts. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm being your goddamn slave is what I'm being, man. Now, we made a deal here. So? So? So you're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn, remember? For four days, I've been busting my ass. I haven't learned a goddamn thing. Ah, uh, you learned plenty. I learned plenty. I learned how to sand your decks, maybe. i wax your car, paint your house, paint your fence. I learned plenty, right? Uh,
0: not everything is as simple.
1: Oh, bullshit. I'm going home, man.
0: Daniel-san. Daniel-san. What? Come here. Show me sand the floor.
1: Uh, Rocky obviously led you to a, a kind of, you know, to be perhaps even typecast, as making a, a, a certain kind of movie that if you want to be reductive about it, you could say it's the, it's the, it's the anti-hero overcoming situations and it's sports-centric. So Karate Kid obviously came about 10 years later. And Karate Kid is a movie with similarly to Rocky, no stars. Uh, I, no, I don't know that, that it was a, a, a big budgeted movie.
0: Well, it was more than Rocky, but you know that's not saying anything. But it was it was about a surrogate father. Pat Morita and, and the in the Mr. Miyagi character was the surrogate father we all wished we had. You know, he was wise and funny and generous and what's not to like? Yeah,
1: is that what attracted you to the New Bad? Yeah. Did you set that movie up yourself? to no, Robert no. Did Robert no. script came to you first? or
0: No, Jerry uh, Weintraub had this idea. He, he saw a TV show about a, a kid in the valley who was uh, being beat up, and he took karate, and he uh, stopped being uh, bullied, and he thought that would uh, make a movie, and um, he commissioned uh, Robert Kamen to uh, do the first draft, and then uh, I entered the scene.
1: Fast wash all the car, then wax.
0: Remember, dear, no question.
1: Yeah, but uh... I.
0: Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important.
1: That's 1985? 83. 83, all right. So I was probably 18, 19 years old, and that movie had just come out, and I was standing in line at a multiplex going to see something else, and I heard. Two, two girls behind me, two 16 year old girls, and they were trying to figure out what movie to see. And they were going through, should we see this? Should we see that? Should we see this? And finally said, no, no, no let's just go see Karate Kid again. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, this is how hit movies get born. The hell with everything else. Let's just see the one that we know well, works. Wow, that's yeah. a
0: great. I never heard that one. That's <laughs> terrific. Was that expected, though, that, no, for that movie? No, listen. You know, they always ask you, what did you think when you were making... Who has time to think about that? You're trying to figure out how I'm going to get through the day. Am I going to get any sleep tonight? You know, I, I never think about, uh, you know, uh, how is it going to be received? You, you, you like the story, and... Um, you think other people will too, and you know you wish for the best. But you don't spend time thinking about how it's going to
1: be received. He said, "I've never done
0: it. What? Well, that's a waste of time."
1: So when you got his script, when you got Cayman's script, did you see it as a natural sort of progression from Rocky? Did you no, see when they were?
0: I didn't think about Rocky. I thought this is a totally different story. Yeah, people make that parallel, and you know you could make that case, but I never thought that. Um, they were similar and they're very different characters.
1: The 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 great thrilling scene, and I and I eventually did see Karate Kid, and I've seen it actually many times. I I, I love the movie, uh, and of course it's to me it's it, it's one of the most emotional scenes. Is is you know he's put that kid through building fences and and doing everything that the kid doesn't want to know how to do, and he finally they put it together, and it it's a scene that brings tears to my eyes when I see it, um, and a lot of it, of course, it's in his script.
0: Well, and Robert Kamen knew all about karate, and he was a black belt and so on and so forth. So he wrote all that stuff, and, and um, I knew nothing about boxing. I knew nothing about uh, karate, and nothing's changed. Right. But he knew all that stuff. So the way he wrote it, we just followed the directions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Was he was? Did he help you do any of that? Was he on set? Was he?
0: He, he and I became uh, uh, very good friends, and uh, I had a, a, a lot of fun uh, working with him. And we also did uh, The Power of One uh, together. So right. we had we had a we hit it off. I've always I had the greatest admiration and respect for writers because, you know, you can't do anything without the, the script. If it's not in the script, you're talking to yourself.
1: Yeah, it, it um, and now you, there were there were three sequels or two sequels to Karate Kid. Oh, well, there
0: are about eighteen. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there's uh, eighteen we, more in the future, I'm <laughs> right. sure. Yeah, there was uh, one, two, and three, and then there was the one with the uh, girl. Yeah, and then there's the Will Smith one.
1: Right, of course, the, the the reboot. Yeah, right. You did. I did the first three. The first three. Yeah,
0: and I, I, I didn't like the. I had a whole different uh, idea for getting the girl involved. I wanted uh, it to open where Daniel is, uh, is killed. He comes to uh, Mr. Miyagi's uh, defense and gets into a fight, and uh, in the course of the fight, he's killed. Mr. Miyagi says, I taught him too well, and is crushed. Yeah. And then the girl walks in, <laughs> and you start from there. Right. And I was very disappointed with the third one. I didn't want to do that. Uh, that story. What uh, Robert and I uh, had this idea that the the third one would spring from uh, a story that Daniel hears in the second one when he asked uh, Mr. Miyagi, "Where did uh, you know the, your karate uh, come from?" And he said, "Well, my a- ancestor uh, was a fisherman, and he's out fishing, and he too much sake, too much sun. He passes out." wakes up off the coast of China and came back 10 years later with a, a Chinese wife and a, and a kid and the secret to Miyagi family karate. I said now that's a story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let, 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 let these two guys time travel they pump their head on something or whatever and they're in ancient China and they peer through the bushes and there's the original Mr. Miyagi played by Pat also but we're in China now And uh, the uh, Marty Cove crease character is a pirate. And all these people uh, come back, but they're in this. And we're in China and nothing had been shot in China. And Coca-Cola owned Columbia at that time. And they would be happy to go to China. And there was nothing political about the movie. So China was happy to see us and they uh, said no. And so we did the first one over again, it was
1: horrible. It's funny, interesting to me though, you, you did three, the three Karate Kids in a row, but it took you three sequels for you to get back to Rocky. So you did, well, I only you do Rocky, Rocky, and Rocky he, Five. I
0: only do Rocky when he's broke. <laughs> 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 well, and Rocky was supposed to die in the uh, in the end of, of Rocky Five. That's a big reason why it took the thing. He has this uh, horrific fight with Tommy Gunn, and he's on the way to the hospital. Is uh, his head in Adrian's lap and he dies and the last scene in the movie Adrian comes out and announces to the assembled world press in front of the hospital that Rocky is dead but as long as he as long as people believe in themselves Rocky's spirit will live forever and I thought whoa, what a way to go out and we see him running up the stairs from the first one terrific let's do that so i was very excited i thought that would be a beautiful end to the series and um and that's what sylvester wrote so we start shooting that in chronological order and a week or two into the movie the head of the studio uh calls up and he says by the way rocky doesn't die really why is that well these people don't die batman doesn't die james (laughs) bond doesn't die superman he doesn't die either so uh rocky didn't die but the movie died because without that it was a shaggy dog story
1: yeah now you can't i guess there's there's no there's no logic you know business logic to ending such a such a you know such an iconic franchise people would have
0: gone to see it exactly yeah
1: (laughs) do you like giving actors you know what i always think of as the actor's free take you know do it a few ways show me what you want to do give it a
0: Well, hopefully, I'm going to be able to be rehearsing with the actor long before we come to do it for real. So, when we're doing it for real, which is the most expensive time, a lot of that stuff's been um, talked about and done. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, the last thing you want to do is show up in the set and somebody comes up and says, Where does the camera go? You know, like, gee, let me think. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, you know, all that stuff's got to be worked out beforehand. So when you're there for the real expensive time, everybody knows what they're doing. At least that's the ideal way of doing it. At least I think so.
1: So in your rehearsal process, is it does it begin with a table read and progress to actually staging no, things out? No, no, no. Sooner I can get to the
0: location where we're going to shoot the thing, and I don't need the circus. I don't need anybody there. I just, the actor and, and my my little camera. and and You don't even bring a DP. Well, if he's on the payroll. um, But uh, I know how I want the thing to look and so on and so forth. And And you don't have the circus there. So you say, well, listen, Where's the sun going to go down or why don't you start, okay, well, why, why don't you do this? And, you, and that's the time to play around with things where you don't have the intimidation of everybody looking at their watch and time, lunch is coming. And look how long they rehearse a play on Broadway.
1: So why not rehearse a movie? I've always felt, I've never done that extensive a rehearsal, but the thing that I've found very important is to bring the actors to all the sets so that they see the environment that they're going to be in. And and what's usually happened is they get so excited, they just start wanting to run a scene. They just want it to start going. The the
0: location is a huge character in the story. Mm -hmm. You end up looking at a lot more of the location than you do of the actor. So those locations are real important. And the more you can spend time living in there and moving around and what would the character do if he had a window there, he might look out or whatever, the better.
1: Yeah. Also, you can avoid and I mean, this does happen, you know, quite a bit when, when an actor walks in and says, I'm sorry, what the hell is this? This is yeah, I Yeah, I wouldn't live. have a room like I this. I wouldn't, right. That's not happening on right. the day of. That's... Blue
0: wall? I wouldn't have a blue wall. Right, are you exactly.
1: nuts?
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, you must have seen uh, Day for Night, right? Of course. For All right. Fo, well, yeah. that's the classic movie about making movies. Sure, sure. <laughs> On uh, Joe and Susan Sarandon's first movie, we had this horrible apartment on the Lower East Side and we're going to start shooting because we shot in order, which I'm a big believer in. The last day of rehearsal, she wanted to sleep there that night and we're going to shoot there the next day. She wanted to sleep there to get into the place and this place, nobody would want to sleep (laughs) there. So I had the greatest
1: admiration for her. Sure. Have you thought of working in television?
0: Um, yeah, uh, but you know, um, well, you, you got to keep in, in mind a few things. The last movie I did was the John Claude Van Damme movie that I took my name off of, and because I got recut, and the thing went directly to uh, to video. When were, you, there, were
1: you you were Alan Smithy?
0: When there was uh, no, uh, you couldn't use that anymore because I think that was the name of a movie that Arthur Hiller did. Yeah, yeah, that was Joe S. which pretty Haas, funny, yeah. right? So I picked the name Patrick Maloney or something. The, the most stupid name I could think of.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: you know, so much for trying to keep something like that a secret. It's a very small business. So anyway, that went straight to video. So if you're running a studio, you only get to greenlight so many movies. And if they don't make money, then, you know, you don't have a place to park there anymore. So, and I'm not getting younger every year, uh, so I'm not on the tip of anybody's tongue.
1: Are you developing more things? Well, I've or? got a,
0: a Holocaust movie, which is a great story about a father and, and a, a grandfather and a son. And I've got a, a another... A, story with the baseball as a background.
1: Okay, so wait a minute. We're, let, let's pause here for one sec because here's the weirdest part of the interview and in some ways it's just it's so showbiz that you, it, you can't believe these things happen. So here I am talking with John and I'm asking him about what his future projects are. and he's going to tell you about a baseball movie, a redemption-oriented baseball movie that he's looking forward to making. He didn't wind up making it. He walked off of it as he had so many others. But what was peculiar here was that uh, it was offered to another director, Uh, and that was me. I I got offered this movie that John had quit, Uh, and I called John and I said, you know, a strange thing has happened, but that movie you told me about during our conversation is now being offered to me. And I know you left. I, I know that you didn't get fired or anything. That you didn't like something that was going on. But I, I said I still feel like uh, I'm marrying a friend of mine's ex-wife. Like I, I like, is this okay? Are we? Or can we all be friends with this? And John said, you know, let's have a coffee and I'll tell you my war stories. Good luck with it. You know, I'm, I'm glad they called you. Again, very John Avelson. He just was not emotional about stuff like that. Uh, Unfortunately, we never had that coffee A couple months later, he was dead I think he already knew that he was sick And uh, it was kind of also like him to not tell anyone that he was ill At least anyone who was not his close family We made the movie uh, It is that baseball redemption movie I don't know whether it's out or not when you listen to this podcast or not But I thought of John a lot while I was making that movie And it was, it was a little strange and a little sweet He, he gifted me a movie and that was the end of our relationship.
0: And I've got a, a, another story with the baseball as a background that is about uh, love and redemption. Oh, um,
1: is so that Stano? Right.
0: Yeah, I read that. Yeah. Yeah, good script. And, uh, you know, so I'm trying to get those off the ground and um, waiting to see if anybody salutes. In Los Angeles on Friday, John G. Avildsen, the Oscar winning director of the original Rocky with Sylvester Stallone, passed away after battling pancreatic cancer at the age of 81. Uh, Following the the surprising success of Rocky, Evelson went on to craft more audience-pleasing underdog stories, like 1984's The Karate Kid. At the time of his death, Evelson was working on his first film in nearly two decades, Nate and Al starring Richard Dreyfuss and Martin Landau. Among those paying tribute to Evelson was Rocky star Sylvester Stallone, who posted a farewell on Instagram with a caption reading, I'm sure you will soon be directing hits in heaven. Thank you, Sly. How can you have more fun than directing a movie? You know, I mean, it's, it, every day is make-believe. I mean, it's, it's great fun. And especially if by the time the first day of shooting shows up, you know, you've got the, the crew you want, you've got the cast you want, everybody's making the same movie. Right. Boy, it's, it's, it's really fun.
1: That's the end of part two of my conversation with the late John Avildsen. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed having it with him, and I loved knowing him. So hopefully you got to know John a little bit through that conversation. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestoldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research.